At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency, to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The RCSL program stands for Regional Computer Forensics Laboratory. These are graphic, disturbing images that have to be processed. Technology itself is always changing. Steganography. The practice of concealing a message within another message. There's more to it than meets the eye. A picture within a pixel of a picture. Never take anything at, at face value. We were able to extract all the data from her phone, even in that corroded, destroyed state. In this episode, we travel to the FBI field office in Kansas City. Our guest is Supervisory Special Agent Sarah Lucas, who oversees the FBI's Regional Computer Forensic Lab in Kansas City. We'll learn how the FBI partners with your local police to process the mountains of digital data in virtually every case. And if you've ever accidentally dropped your cell phone into water, this episode is for you. Sarah, welcome. Hi. We're glad that we could travel into the field for the first time on this podcast. And you're our first guest in an FBI field office environment. And we're thrilled to talk to you about the regional computer forensic lab system throughout the country and throughout the FBI. Sarah, tell us a little bit about your journey into the Bureau, where you came from, what you did before you joined the FBI, and what the FBI has assigned you since you've entered the Bureau. I was born and raised in uh, Northeast Iowa, 
and went to college in Nebraska for journalism and sociology, not really thinking I would go into law enforcement. My first job out of college was at a juvenile rehabilitation center for juvenile sex offenders as a counselor there. And then I went into local law enforcement here in the Kansas City area with one of the local um, police departments, Overland Park, Kansas Police Department. I served there as a patrol officer and then a detective working uh, internet crimes against children for about six years. And then started with the Bureau in 2010. Uh, My first field office was Atlanta, and I was assigned working intellectual property rights on one of our cyber squads. I then made the journey to Washington, D.C. at our Washington field office and worked cyber crimes, uh, criminal intrusions. And then to FBI headquarters, uh, I spent about three years working in the Violent Crimes Against Children unit. And then um, in 2017, I came here to Kansas City, got to come back home and become the supervisory special agent over the regional computer forensics lab here in Kansas City. Always nice to to come back home when that's available to you. You and I have something in common. Uh, my first office was also Atlanta, although it was just a few years before uh, <laughs> before your uh, assignment. There. We didn't really overlap. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, but let's talk about what RCFL stands for, what the mission is, and how many regional labs are throughout the United States? The RCFL program stands for Regional Computer Forensics Laboratory. They were started in the early 2000s as a partnership between the FBI and other state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies in order to create a task force environment where we can support local law enforcement agencies examining uh, digital evidence for a wide range of investigations. There are 17 RCFLs in the nation. I am the director of the Heart of America RCFL here in Kansas City. Tell us about the men and women that staff the RCFL there in Kansas City, where they come from, how the process works in terms of who gets on from various departments and what the benefits are for those departments that join the RCFL team. Yeah, the each RCFL is comprised a little bit differently, but here at the Heart of America Lab, we are mostly comprised of task force officers. We do have one FBI agent as well as myself and some additional support staff from the FBI. But out of the 23 employees that we have, 17 are task force officers. So those task force officers come from other state and local law enforcement agencies here in the Kansas City metro area. The partners that we have in law enforcement each send us somebody to work full time in the lab as a forensic examiner. The benefit of that being that we will then work their cases as they need forensic examinations. And we also train their personnel to become an expert forensic examiner. That training process takes about two years for them to complete. It is a very intensive process where um, on the stand, they can testify that they are experts in forensic examinations. And what the state and local law enforcement get out of that is not only the, the training capability of that one law enforcement officer, but by providing us with one 
detective to be a part of our team, they really are then gaining the other 23 employees that we have at our office because we will work all their digital evidence cases and they get to have that as one of the tools that they can use as um, what we do at our lab. So this sounds like a real force multiplier and and a smart move. I, I can see where a chief of police might f- at first blush say, hey, wait a minute, I have to take a precious resource from my department and give them to you. And of course, what you've just explained sounds like it's an incredible partnership and force multiplier, uh, not only for the training, but now you have an entire team looking at your evidence and processing it for you. What about what about police departments that 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 just can't afford that resource or or aren't decide they decide not to be a part of the RCFL. Do do you still take their some of their evidence and, and process that? How does that work? We do. The cost is a huge impairment for a lot of agencies. And that's also one of the benefits of sending us a task force officer is that you don't as a department have to pay for all the equipment and the training of that forensic examiner. It is very expensive in that we use a lot of tools and sometimes just the output of um, providing that evidence can be expensive. We do provide exams for agencies that cannot send us somebody. A lot of, we serve all of Kansas and the Western two thirds of Missouri. So we have a lot of rural areas that have very small departments that just couldn't possibly staff, even if they could afford to send somebody logistically, they're six, seven hours away. In our lab, we will take up to five exams a year from those agencies. And there are additional labs out there that charge, but the RCFL does not charge for those five exams. And then a participating agency can send us as many exams as they want. Got it. And, you know, it it seems to me these days that evidence collected in crimes or national security investigations is almost by definition, digital these days. Can you help us get a feel for the size and scope or try to quantify the amount of evidence your team has pending or processes on an annual basis? And then follow-up question, how do you possibly prioritize or triage what gets processed first in which case? We have about 700 cases a year come through our lab that usually approximates about 2,000 pieces of evidence that come in every year. So we do have a backlog uh, with only 23 people working in the lab and that many cases come in. It does get weighed down and we currently have approximately 140 cases waiting to be worked and then another 130 that are currently assigned to examiners. So there's a lot of work out there to process and In order to prioritize those, we have to prioritize them, one, a little bit based on the participating agency status. So if you're a participating agency, we're going to prioritize your stuff just a little bit ahead of um, those that do not prioritize or that do not participate. However, the biggest case priority that we have is based on crime type. So uh, if it's a case of national security, that's going to be first. And then we work our way down onto cases where, you know, there's a serious threat of bodily harm or injury, and then cases where it's a threat of property damage or anything down the line as far as a threat to life is how we prioritize. Sarah, do team members develop 
specialties within the team. Maybe somebody's more adept at terrorist cases or national security cases versus, say, child pornography cases. Investigators usually specialize by crime type. Our examiners specialize rather by specialization in a certain tool or a certain evidence type. So, for example, we have some examiners that specialize in cell phones or Macs or Linux. Um, We have audio video examiners or even vehicle infotainment systems. Those are all some of the specializations that we have. That makes that makes a lot of sense. How about protocols on how long a forensic examiner should work this extremely difficult area of child porn? Do you move that around? These are these are graphic, disturbing images that have to be processed. And um, how does that work within a team? Well, we don't have a protocol as to how long somebody can work that violation, just like uh, agents in the field that work that violation don't necessarily have a, a time gap that they have to stop working. However, we do try to move that around a little bit. As cases come in, if I notice that somebody has worked three child pornography cases, I might assign them a homicide case or a, a financial crimes case next, just to not have them sit in that environment for too long. And we have that ability within the lab, which is nice. But just like agents that work child exploitation in the field, they don't, it's never a mandatory work environment. So if somebody comes to me and says, I can't work this violation anymore, they don't have to work it. We will find a different place for them. And there's no shame in having enough of that. It's, it's a very difficult job. And there's a lot of people that are just not meant to do that. With regard to this kind of skill sets that make a person a good forensic examiner, you you see a variety of uh, police personnel coming into your team. What are some of your observations about backgrounds, either academically or work-related, and even personal characteristics that make someone a successful forensic examiner? Do you, do you have folks who come with virtually zero background in uh, in technology? We do. It's actually one of my favorite things about the FBI as a whole, but also in the RCFL program, is that we have some people that we hire because of their technical background and they have a a world of expertise in the the technical side, but don't necessarily have a lot as far as the investigative side. But then on the flip side, a lot of the RCFL examiners that come in are from a law enforcement background and have no technical skill whatsoever, but they were top-notch investigators. Both of those bring a certain thing to the table, and both of them are, I think, equally important. The Bureau prides itself on training people to be the best that they can be in different areas. So if somebody comes in and has that technical background, what we're going to teach them in those first two years may not be the technical stuff that they already know. We're going to teach them our way of doing it, but we're also going to invest the time to teach them how to think like an investigator, because really at the end of the day, we're providing a product to the investigator that will be useful in their investigation. So we have to know what they are looking for, how to interpret the search warrants that come in, and 
how to look for the information that they want. And then on the flip side of that, you've got the investigators that have a world of expertise in investigations, but don't necessarily know the technical side. We'll teach them that. And then working together as a team like that, we have a great variety of people that can bring different things to the table. Give us a feel for the daunting amount of data in just one case, for example. I'm, I'm imagining turning over my cell phone uh, in an investigation or my laptop, but I can only imagine in, say, a white-collar crime case where you're seizing an entire company's network or drive or equipment. What, what Give us some examples of kind of the, the quantity of data in just one case alone that you might encounter. This is actually kind of interesting in the way that digital evidence has prevailed as a more important thing in every case. And we see that in the amount of data that we have seen come through the lab. When we opened our lab in 2003, I think the amount of data that came through was just about four terabytes in the entire year, where now a four terabyte case would not be that large, just one case. So a terabyte is a a unit of measurement uh, usually associated with digital evidence storage space. So to give you an idea of what a terabyte is, like an average MP3 for a song is about three megabytes. A terabyte would hold over 300,000 songs or a DVD, you could hold over 200 movies on a terabyte. So that's, that's like the storage space that we're looking at. And we're covering hundreds of terabytes a year. Yeah, that, so that was a helpful, helpful picture of uh, what you're up against and, and uh, where technology is going for the good and, and maybe for the not so good in terms of the bad guys. Let's go deeper into the challenges presented by technology right after this break. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, everybody, it's AG for the Bureau. Is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or causing a lot of anxiety in your life? Uh, As you may know, I have struggles with PTS, and I know how hard it is to ask for help, but you are not alone. BetterHelp is there to assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist you can start communicating with in fewer than 48 hours. The best thing about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line or self-help. It is professional counseling by licensed therapists done conveniently and securely online. You can log into your account anytime from anywhere and send a message to your counselor and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in a crowded waiting room or in stressful traffic. And BetterHelp has a wide range of experts and they're available no matter where you are because it's online. Most importantly, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating the great therapeutic match necessary for trust building so they make it easy and free to change a counselor. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit betterhelp.com slash bureau. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash bureau, B-U-R-E-A-U, and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for listeners of the Bureau, you get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash bureau. And we're back with Sarah Lucas of FBI Kansas City. What are some of the challenges you're seeing these days? What makes your job harder? Um, and are the are the bad guys uh, ahead of the good guys in exploiting technology? 
Well, there's always aspects to the job that are difficult. Technology itself is always changing. Um, I think that's the biggest difficulty in the job, but it's also the most exciting part of the job in that you're never going to do the same thing twice because technology is going to change day to day, week to week, and you're always going to be learning the next new thing. We test a lot of forensic tools that are out there in the private sector, as well as develop our own in the FBI. Forensics tends to be a cat and mouse game with how software and hardware is developed. We have to determine how it works and then how to exploit that because there's bad guys out there doing the same thing and we need to keep up. So I wouldn't say that bad guys are ahead of us, but in certain arenas, it's definitely a neck and neck race. Cracking the code on crime, technology increasingly being used by law enforcement agencies. One example in the case against former high school teacher and swim coach James Russell Green. He was sentenced earlier this year for sexually assaulting and exploiting children when he secretly videotaped. The FBI's regional forensic computer lab in Kansas City was instrumental in that case. Consumer investigative reporter Kat Reed got a rare look at their technology. Technology that can travel straight to the scene of the crime. We can hook up people's phones. We can get into computers. Five computers on four wheels deployed all over Kansas and Missouri. Yeah, it sounds like almost a daily battle with uh, what, what's, uh, what the big tech is providing us in terms of technology. And, you know, this brings back a memory of when in my days working counterintelligence and counterterrorism, I encountered something called steganography. And uh, it was an eye opener for me in that uh, I learned that sometimes what you think you're looking at is not exactly what you're looking at, or there's more to it than meets the eye. Can you can you tell us about steganography and whether you've encountered that? Yeah, so steganography is the practice of concealing a message within another message or within another physical object. We've seen this, you know, through wartime letters and hidden messages in popular culture. You might have seen that. Uh, but in digital forensics, we're looking for hidden messages within digital files. Uh, so a picture embedded within a video, for example, that if you speed the video up or slow it down, you might be able to see that picture or sometimes a picture within a picture. So a picture within a pixel of a picture. And uh, that's one of the things that we look for. Yeah, there's a whole secret, whole, whole secret world going on. Um, and it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not just limited to spies and terrorists, but probably child pornographers and others these days. Yes, uh, that's, uh, we've seen this in a couple cases. Child pornography is one that I can think of where it was a picture within a picture. But the examiners, because they aren't just trained to see, I saw a picture and here's where it was, they're trained to look at the picture and say, here's the picture, here's where it is, this is why it's here, this is why it's odd, and any changes that were made. So the examiners are able to look for that kind of stuff, and that's why they are the experts. Yeah, I mean, I, it sounds like the general concept uh, in all of uh, law enforcement and investigations, which is never take anything at, at face value, seems like it truly applies here. Exactly. So on the same topic of challenges you're facing, let's talk about encryption. We're hearing a lot about encryption today in terms of social media, people migrating off of platforms, perhaps because they've been suspended um, off of their social media platforms. And what's the the role of encryption in making your job tougher? 
Well, encryption is a major issue in the forensics world. Like you said, encryption, we're seeing it in our daily lives more and more to keep our information safe from cyber intruders. The more that we keep our information in the cloud or in a digital capacity, we also want to keep that information safe. But also when we want to get that information off, it can be very difficult because a lot of the companies, I mean, San Bernardino is one of those that we've seen, everybody's seen that in the news where we weren't able to get into the devices right away. And some in that particular case, it's something where we wanted to get into that device because it could be a threat to national security and that's a, a bad guy's device. But then also what we see actually on a more regular basis isn't necessarily something where you're thinking a, a terrorist is hiding something and we can't get into the encryption, but just simple cell phone locks that maybe a victim's cell phone in homicides. Homicides are the the number one case that we see come through our lab is the number one crime type. So often we get a victim's cell phone where the victim's been murdered, they had the cell phone in the pocket and they can't be identified. Well, that cell phone might be the only way that we can identify that victim and let their families know what happened to them. And then for the investigator to you know, pursue those additional leads. So that's something that we we work on to try to get into those cell phones just because it's locked. We do have some cases where we're able to get into those and help the investigators find those victims. Yeah, you've you've raised an issue that I, you know, I completely discounted or not realized is that uh, it isn't just bad guys um, that make it hard. It's the it's victims who you might need to bring closure to in their own devices that contain evidence of what happened to them might actually be coded or in, encrypted. It's a it's an interesting dilemma for for law enforcement and I know for the big tech providers. Um, and Congress is weighing in on on these things. And there's proposed legislation and lots of pros and cons about the privacy and civil liberties versus securing our our nation. We'll all stay tuned on on where that discussion goes. Um, you, you've raised uh, an issue with me when we talked uh, earlier, Sarah, about um, an interesting initiative, and that is something called, and, and I'm, our listeners are becoming accustomed to acronyms um, when, when I talk with uh, FBI personnel. This acronym is ECAP, and it, it has to do with establishing a, a kind of database of known images um, that help you recognize where something might be taken taking place. T- tell me, tell us more about that. So there's a there's a group up at headquarters. Operation Rescue Me is one of the groups that works on this, and what they do is try to identify victims in usually child exploitation cases. It's under the Violent Crimes Against Children grouping, and they work not necessarily looking at the victim in those exploitation cases, but the background. And we provide them as digital investigators and the evidence in that. And what they try to do is use tools to better see the things in the background that may help identify that victim. It might be something as small as an outlet plug. So an outlet plug in the United States looks a lot different than an outlet plug in Europe. So just looking at the outlet plug in the background of a picture might be able to at least tell us what country it happened in. And then there's additional tools where 
you might look at the bedspread and say, well, I think this picture happened at this particular, we know what happened in this country. The pattern of this bedspread, we can then send it out to wholesalers in the area that would have sold bedspreads at that point. Do you recognize who might have manufactured this? What stores it would have been sold at? Additional tips that lead us a little bit closer to possibly identifying that victim. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, it's fascinating work. Involves a lot of leg work as well. Might might these background images on file even help you identify a particular type of hotel or or brand name hotel, perhaps that uh, where crime occurred inside a room? Yes, absolutely. So that's one of the the tools that they would use is actually going out and taking pictures of local hotel rooms. Then they can compare those and using tools uh, like forensic tools where they can compare images and compare like images, they might be able to find similar backgrounds so that they can then match those up and say, not only do I know this happened in the United States, I know it happened in Kansas, in Kansas City at this hotel. Yeah, I've I've seen even I think more than ever before the FBI posting publicly on social media, an image um, that looks like maybe it is a motel or hotel room. And, you know, I it doesn't go into detail, but it seeks the public's help in identifying uh, items in that background or or perhaps knowledge of where that might have happened. And I, I almost cringe when I see those because I know um, what's going on likely in that image that's not public. And it's... Um, I, I, I always hope and cross fingers that some member of the public can look at that public posting and, and help the Bureau out. Yes, absolutely. It's it's tedious work, but it, it does great things in the long run. I always like to talk about the success stories, and there's so many in the, in the work of the FBI, and I'm sure there are with regard to the RCFL program in the Bureau. Tell us about One of your teams at Heart of America, tell us about one of your team's success stories or that something that reflects the amazing work that's that you're able to do to retrieve evidence that might seemingly seem impossible to get. One of the cases I like to talk about is it's kind of a sad case. However, it really highlights some of the really interesting stuff we can do when an investigator might think all hope is lost. Uh, There was a local case where a young woman left her work late at night and was supposed to meet a friend, but she never showed up. Uh, She was reported missing, and it was discovered that her last encounter uh, with anyone was when she was pulled over by a local police department and then released. There were a lot of questions as to her impairment level and if the missing person case involved foul play or not. She was missing for about two months when her vehicle was discovered uh, in the Missouri River, and she was discovered inside the vehicle along with her cell phone. So after her cell phone was recovered, it was brought into evidence, but was not necessarily brought to the RCFL right away. It came a couple weeks later. Upon arrival, the phone was extremely damaged. The screen was shattered. It had separated away from the back of the phone. It was caked in dirt and corrosion from the being at the bottom of the river. And I think a normal investigator would have looked at that and said, well, that phone is trashed because everybody's dropped a phone in water and, you know, it's not usually recoverable, even if you put it in rice. So utilizing uh, one of the tools that we have here 
we got an exemplar phone, which is essentially a new version of the same device that she had. And by taking that device apart and then taking her device apart, cleaning it extensively and cutting off the little board of the phone, what we call it the chip, the chip of the phone that has all the data, unsoldering that, cleaning it off, cutting it out of the exemplar, and then putting it back into that new exemplar phone so that we can get all the data off. We were able to extract all the data from her phone, even in that corroded, destroyed state. That data helped provide the investigating agency information that helped determine that there was no foul play involved. She had some intoxication involved and had gotten lost and accidentally driven down a ramp into the river. And that was able, in the end, while it was a sad case, it was really interesting that we were able to get that and hopefully provide her family with closure that no foul play was involved and um, it was just an unfortunate accident. Amazing story. Uh, I think I'm calling you, Sarah, next time I drop my cell phone in a puddle. Uh, All right. You're going to you're going to regret telling me this story. Um, <laughs> we, we've been talking today with Supervisory Special Agent Sarah Lucas of the FBI Kansas City Heart of America Regional Computer Forensic Lab. Sarah, it's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. Please go back and thank your team for all of the work they do to keep us safer. I will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Please join us next time when we explore the latest in biometric identification, from fingerprints to iris scans. In our next episode, look into my eyes. The Bureau is written by Frank Figluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. This show is engineered by Matt Brousseau with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for the Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.